If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, we need to talk this morning about the importance of rejecting Jesus. How's that for provocative? Do I have your attention? I wrestled this week with how to approach these verses. I needed a starting point, some, some organizing theme for us to handle all that's here. And there's a lot here. In five little old verses, Peter has packed in quite a bit. He's got three direct quotations from the Old Testament, which those are used a bunch of other numerous times in the New Testament. He's got about a dozen or more allusions to the Old Testament in addition to those quotations. He's got great doctrines at work here, deep, deep theology about election and salvation and the church and who Jesus is and who we are and what our responsibilities are now that we've come to Jesus. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, where do I even start? How do I organize all this? And so one of the things that I considered in trying to organize it all was, all right, now what's the context again? That's always a good thing to go back to. Who is, who is Peter writing to, and what are they going through? What's their present experience that he's speaking into? Well, if you'll remember from the intro, they're young believers. They're new Christians. They're, they're in Asia Minor, and they're, they're exiles. Now, they're either physical, actual exiles who had to leave their homes and go to Asia Minor as part of a resettlement of of Roman-occupied lands, or even if they were native to Asia Minor, even if that is quote-unquote home, when they decided to follow Jesus, that in essence made them exiles. That in essence made them strangers even in their own land. Which leads us to the next part of the context, the next important part of the context. These folks were suffering because of following Jesus. They were being rejected by their communities, by their families, by society at large. And when I thought about that part of the context, it began to gel a little bit for me. Then the rejection that I saw in what Peter was writing about made some sense. See, who he's writing to, they're being rejected. And then he's got this theme of rejection, this thread of rejection in what he is writing here. That's the very first thing Peter's going to mention in these verses is rejection. He says, you're coming to a rejected Savior. That's a really odd way to start off, isn't it? A rejected Savior? Well, what good is that? Why would you want a loser for a Savior? Why follow Him? Especially if following Him is going to happen at great personal cost to you. Well, as it turns out, as we dig into these verses, Peter thinks it's a pretty big deal, a pretty important deal, actually, that Jesus was rejected. It's actually a pretty crucial piece of the gospel in which we hope, in which we now stand. And so if you're able, would you now stand for the reading of God's word? Five verses in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, 
chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us now? Would you give us eyes to see our rejected cornerstone of a Savior and understand why his rejection was necessary? And to help us know what it means when we experience our own rejection. Would you draw all of these things out of the text for us through your powerful Holy Spirit? And as we see Jesus, our cornerstone, would we be changed? Would you cause us to have our lives built solidly on his firm foundation? We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Can we just start by zipping through these verses and getting the lay of the land? There's a lot going on here, and I'd like for us to just get it all out on the table, the stuff that's here, and then we can get into what it means and what difference that it makes for us or that it should make for us. Uh, The first big thing we've got is a metaphor. Starts in verse 4. Jesus is a stone. Right? And that's continued through the whole passage. And it is an appropriate metaphor because of all the scriptural support we see for it. Now, Peter, throughout the whole letter, uses a lot of Old Testament background. Tons of allusions, tons of direct quotations. He seems... Uh, very much to be trying to show how Christianity, faith in Christ as the Messiah, is nothing new. This is no newfangled religion to go along with the 117 other religions that are out there. No, this is this has always been. This is a continuation. This is a culmination of what the Lord has been doing for centuries. And so we've got three direct quotations from the Old Testament. They're probably in the footnotes of your Bible saying, oh, this is where it came from. But just in case, and if you want to jot it out to the side, I'm going to tell you where these three quotations came from. We see in verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. This comes from Isaiah 28, 16. We see in verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This comes from Psalm 118, 22. And Isaiah 8, 14 is quoted in verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
Now here's an aside. This didn't make it into the, the meat of the sermon or whatnot, but it still it, it, it intrigued me so much, and I want to spend some time thinking about it and meditating on it. This stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, the word there for offense, must have been stuck in Peter's mind. It's the Greek word scandalon, and he heard Jesus use it. When Jesus himself was stumbling over the gospel, when Jesus himself was having a hard time with the concept of a Savior who just told us that he has to die, and Peter rebuked Jesus and said, no, you can never die. And Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're being a hindrance to me. You're being a hindrance. You're being a scandal on. This is an offense. That's the same word. It's stuck in Peter's mind, and he's bringing it up here with this quotation for us. You take that, and you go chew on it a little bit this afternoon. Now, First Peter isn't the only place that these cornerstone references show up in the New Testament. Peter himself is going to use them again when he's before the Sanhedrin, recorded in Acts 4, right? He's using them against these religious leaders. He quotes them in Acts 4, 11 and 12. Jesus himself, right? This isn't just Peter and, and, and Paul thinking that Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus himself viewed, him, he viewed himself as the cornerstone. Uh, one of the last altercations that he has with the religious leaders, Jesus tells a parable of the wicked tenants, and he's going to use these verses there, and we'll come back to that later. Jesus is the cornerstone. Cornerstone is that first large stone that is set in place in the construction of some large edifice. The cornerstone sets the stage for the success of the whole building. And so obviously and it, has to, it has to be large enough, it has to be square, it has to be true, all three of its dimensions have to be just right, length and width and height. Because every other stone in the building is going to be butted up to or resting on top of this cornerstone. So it's crucial selecting the right stone. It's time-consuming. And so Peter is incorporating this image of that's who Jesus is, this valuable, this precious cornerstone, and he's incorporating it into verse 5, the construction of, of a new building. Now, obviously, in the Old Testament, the most important building project on record would have been the construction of the temple. And so Peter's taking advantage of that being on everyone's mind. When he talks about a cornerstone, when he talks about building a building, they've got the temple on their mind. But now he starts talking about, now he shifts. This is a new building project. It's not of a physical structure, but of a spiritual one. And so these are all the pieces, parts here that we've got. All of these Old Testament quotations, this idea of a construction happening with a cornerstone and with other stones, and woven into all of this, is not that, well, when Jesus just so happens, it was he was rejected. It just so happened that way. It's so very sad. No. 
woven into all of this is the necessity that he be rejected. Just think about that for a second. Why did Jesus have to be rejected if all of this was going to come to be? Uh, What if everybody just thought Jesus was amazing? Oh, what a great guy Jesus is. He's so swell. We love him. We want to serve him, follow him. Well, then where's Calvary in all of that? Where's where's Jesus laying down his life as the, the once and for all final sacrifice to atone for sin? If Jesus wasn't rejected, we're not rescued. In fact, so many benefits flow to us from Christ that trace their origins back to him being rejected. This is essentially a list of those benefits for you in the outline. The first one, because Jesus was rejected, we get a new life. The living that we see in verse 5, we're like living stones. Now, living here obviously helps us see that we're not talking about actual chunks of rock. This is a metaphor, right? But it's also a theological reality. We weren't always living. We used to be dead in our sins and trespasses. We've already seen Peter point out, chapter 1, verse 3, God had to cause us to be born again because we were dead. We formerly weren't alive, but now we are living. In fact, we are living just like Jesus in verse 4 is living. He is the living stone, and we're like him. We're little living stones. We're not the cornerstone. We're just ordinary building stones. We're we're bricks. We're cinder blocks, maybe. Now, this new life also means a new identity. But a new identity isn't just a label that Jesus slaps on us. It's not as simple as receiving a new name or a new description. No, the the identity that we get is a function of being united to Jesus. It's a function of our union with him. Now, that's not language that Peter uses here. But none of this makes sense without it. None of what happens here makes sense without wrestling with the fact that we have been united to Jesus. So much of what Peter is going to offer to these Christians in Asia Minor, so much of the hope and the comfort and the encouragement draws on our union with Christ. He wants these believers to know, y'all, there's a sweet fellowship when you suffer and when you are rejected because your Savior suffered when he was rejected. He wants them to know that there's comfort to be found here and that knowing that what is true of Christ is true of his followers. If he's chosen and precious in the Father's sight, so too are you because you're united to him. He wants them to know Christ died defeating sin and death. Guess what? You get credit for having died too because you're united to him in a death like his. Benefit doesn't stop with the death. Jesus was raised. 
you're going to be united to him in a resurrection like his. How about this honor? There's, there's great honor that we receive because of Christ. It's honor that he deserves, but we benefit from it. You see that in, in verses 6 and 7. Right? When we trust in Jesus, we don't get the shame that we do deserve. We get the honor instead that belongs to him. New life, new identity, these new realities that come from our being united to Christ. New honor. Now, don't skip over the fact, this is, they're all important. But this one is so important. We also get a new community. Let this picture in verse 5 be carried out to its logical conclusion. So, so Jesus is the cornerstone. All of his followers are the regular building stones that are being built into this new spiritual house. Now this word that's used for house here, sometimes it is a physical structure like when you think of a house. But sometimes this word is also used for household or, or the family that dwells there. And those dual possibilities fit especially well here, I think, in this spiritual house. We're not concerned about a building, lovely though it may be. We're concerned about the spiritual reality here. So we see in this word picture, again, this word cornerstone, all the other stones, right? So we see a couple of important things here. We see our union with Jesus here. He's the cornerstone next to which we are butted up to or upon which we are placed. We're connected to him. But we are also connected to each other in this new spiritual house. Y'all, we cannot be united to Christ and connected to him without being united to and connected to everybody else who is united to him. This has huge, major implications on how we view our involvement in the local church. Because the word picture here is not of a bunch of random scattered stones. Oh, there's a stone over there, and there's a few over there. And No, these, this is a picture of stones that have been drawn close and together. As they have been drawn close to Christ, they have necessarily been drawn close to all the other stones being drawn to Christ. This picture is of being built together into something where each stone would necessarily be connected to multiple other stones. Supporting other stones, being supported by other stones. Make sure you catch the both and of that. Right? Church isn't just about what you get out of it. You're not just a consumer here. Your presence, your involvement, your commitment, it benefits the rest of the spiritual house. And therefore, your absence, your lack of involvement hurts the spiritual house. There just simply are not Lone Ranger Christians. 
It is a contradiction in terms. Jesus understood himself to be the cornerstone and us to be connected to him and to each other. Now, J.M., aren't you just preaching to the choir because we're all here? Perhaps. I'm glad that you're here. And I'm glad that those of you that have joined us online, that that you have, have done that based on whatever circumstances you've got going on. But physically walking through the doors or clicking the button to log on to the live stream is no guarantee that you're experiencing the vital, connected body life that Peter is describing here. And frankly, that Jesus died to create. We need to consider all of what Peter's already said here in his letter. This is obviously very important to him and on his mind. He's, he's already said so much that pertains to this community. How he's commanded for us to love each other earnestly. Remember, that, that, that earnest, that, that, that's costing us something. Uh, his warning about those vices that destroy community so quickly. Uh, about the necessary role that we saw that community plays last week in, in us learning to desire and crave and long for pure spiritual milk. We need to give some serious thought to this. So that's the last thing on the list, a, a new community. We've also been given new roles to fulfill. Priests. Yikes. That's a really big deal. If, if Peter's mentioning stones being built up into a building, has people already thinking of the temple from the Old Testament? Well, certainly the priests were a big part of that whole deal. And in the Old Testament, there was a very bright line that separated priests from the common folk. Right? Peace, priests could only come from a very small segment of the population. They were specially called and trained. They were provided for in a special way. They couldn't own land. All of these distinctions made it very, very clear who was and who was not a priest. But now, every follower of Jesus is a part of a new priesthood. And that makes sense if you think about it. So think back to the temple. We've got the temple on the brain. What was so special about the temple in the first place? temple is where God's presence was. The temple was the place where he came to meet with his people. First it was in the tabernacle, then it was in the temple. And only the priest, by entering the holy place, could really, truly experience the presence of God. Everybody else... They got secondhand smoke, basically. But along comes Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? Literally translated, He tabernacled among us. He pitched His tent with us. He came to be God's presence with us, and because He was rejected... 
because he was crucified. What happened when he was crucified? Right, The holy place inside of it had a, a thick, tall curtain, a veil that separated the innermost, holiest sanctum, the holy of holies, and only the high priest one day out of the year could go behind that curtain. So what happens when Jesus is crucified? Darkness covers the earth in the middle of the day. The ground begins to shake, and the curtain is ripped in two from top to bottom. Now every follower of Jesus can experience the presence of God continually without an intermediary. What a blessed benefit comes to us from our rejected Savior. But it's a benefit It's a new role that, of course, comes with some responsibilities, doesn't it? What did the priests do in the Old Testament? They offered sacrifices over and over and over again. Well, uh, we're no longer, thank God, offering the physical, bloody sacrifices. We don't offer physical ones. We offer spiritual ones. And I'd need to take you to a dozen different scriptural references to flesh out what all those are, but I think that you know that we're talking about our our worship as a spiritual sacrifice. We're talking about prayer and praise and thanksgiving. Do do you think of your repentance as a spiritual sacrifice? Uh, You bringing a broken and a contrite heart to God is a beautiful sacrifice to present before him. Even, Even the very lives that we're living day in and day out. Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? Those, those are our sacrifices that we're bringing towards. All kinds of things that we bring as spiritual sacrifices, but they all have one thing in common. In that they are acceptable to God only for one reason. Do you see it there in the text? They're only acceptable to God in that they are offered through Jesus Christ. See, none of what we have to offer comes even close to measuring up. None of it approaches the the quality or the purity that the Lord is worthy of. Not Not to mention the motives that cause us to bring them in the first place, which are faulty and flawed. But when they come through Jesus Christ, washed in his blood, the Father graciously accepts them Uh, Calvin had some beautiful, really just devotional thoughts here uh, about this. He said, There is never found in our sacrifices such purity that they are of themselves acceptable to God. Our self-denial is never entire and complete. Our prayers are never so sincere as they ought to be. We are never so zealous and so diligent in doing good. Our works are imperfect and mingled with many vices, Nevertheless, Christ procures favor for them. What a beautiful reality. He's our mediator. He's making intercession for us. He says, look, Father, at what they've done. Is it perfect? No. But they did it from a heart full of faith. They did it knowing I was going to wash it in my blood and present it to you acceptable. And that really ought to propel us forward. That really ought to cause us all the more 
to want to offer more sacrifices. See, see, if we if we think about our sacrifices, oh, I, nothing that I do is is pleasing, is you know, it's filthy rags, you know, right? That's true. But if that then leaves us in a place where we don't even feel like trying, then we've missed it. Because when we realize what Jesus has done for us, it ought to propel us forward. And Calvin gets at that, that in this next quote. He, he says, it ought to kindle the more the ardor of our efforts. When we hear that God deals so indulgently with us, that in Christ he sets a value on our works which in themselves deserve nothing. Y'all, that ought to motivate us. That ought to free us to say, no, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be from faith. That's what it says Romans 14.23, right? Whatever is done in faith is pleasing to the Lord. Because we did it so well? No. Because Jesus takes it and he makes something out of it. Now, that's a pretty amazing list of benefits. None of which comes to us without the rejection of our Savior. But, to recognize the benefits of Christ being rejected is not to say that the actual rejecting of Christ is to be commended. Yes, Christ had to be rejected. It was by the Father's grand design and plan. But woe to the ones doing the rejecting. Woe to the ones who rejected him then. Woe to the ones who reject him today. See, the ones who rejected Christ when he was here in the flesh, they were the religious cream of the crop. They were the biblical scholars. They were the religious experts. They were the moral paragons of society. They thought they were the builders of God's kingdom. They knew Messiah was coming. They were looking for him. But they were looking for him with their own set of expectations about who he would be and what he would do. And Jesus met none of those expectations. In fact, he shattered them all. And the kingdom that Jesus ushered in Well, it was far different, wasn't it? It was at the same time too easy by these religious leaders' estimation and far too difficult. It was too easy. You can't just go giving away grace. Grace needs to be earned like we've earned it. We've worked so hard. Look how righteous we are, Jesus. Applaud us. Pat us on the back. Give us the places that we have earned and deserve in your kingdom. Jesus wanted them to see how they had never once kept any of the commandments. But they'd broken them all. Jesus and his gospel were offensive to them. And they stumbled over him again and again and again. And I told you one of that, those final climactic encounters that Jesus had with them. He tells him the parable of the, of the vineyard, of the wicked tenants, where the owner of this vineyard sends to collect some of the crop which is rightfully his for leasing out the vineyard. And the tenants refuse. We're not giving you anything. 
So he sends his servants to collect it, and, and they mistreat and abuse the servants. And the owner says, well, I guess I've got one option left. I'll have to show him I mean business. I'm going to send my son. He'll take care of business. And they murder his only son. And in very typical fashion for Jesus, he sets him up. He sets these religious leaders up after he's told this story. He says, what would you do? What do you think should happen to these wicked tenants? Put those wretches to a miserable death. That's what they deserve. Jesus said to them, Matthew 21, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. See, there's, there's a, a dual nature we've got to consider about this cornerstone. Calvin picked up on this and, and wrote a lot about it. The cornerstone is so substantial, so rock solid, that you can build your life on him with absolute security and certainty. You'll never be moved. That's just how substantial this cornerstone is if you're willing to come to him on his terms, accepting him as he says he is, not as we've imagined him to be. That's who the cornerstone is. But he is also so substantial, so strong, of such a substance that he will break you and he will crush you if you don't build your life on him. Those are, it's a binary. There's no neutral ground. There's no, oh, well, Jesus is not. No, Jesus is not just nice. Jesus isn't just a good teacher. He's your cornerstone and you've built your life on him or you are crushed underneath the load of just how great and magnificent he is. Those who do, in fact, stumble over the cornerstone, that do disobey the word and are broken to pieces and crushed, Peter says that they are destined to do so. Ooh, that gives folks some heartburn, doesn't it? Causes a little alarm. You mean to tell me that, that God is forcing people to reject his son? No, I don't mean to tell you that at all. No one has ever had to be forced to reject Jesus, the cornerstone. That's what we are all, every single one of us, hell-bent on doing naturally. No, no one is forced to reject Jesus. The only coercion that has to happen is for anyone to believe in him ever. That's the only time coercion has to come into play 
For anyone to ever believe on the Son, for anyone to ever want to build their life on this cornerstone, they have to be given life in the first place. They have to be caused to be born again. And one of the very first signs that that has happened to you is that you want to come to Jesus. You think this is a good thing because you didn't before. You would have just said, let it crush me. Let it break me to pieces. But no, now you think, oh, this is a good idea. I see how precious and beautiful the cornerstone is, and I want to build my life on him. If you've got any inkling toward that at all this morning, press into it. Cry out to the Lord. Respond to him in repentance and trust. Be united to him. Be united to everyone else who's united to him. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are our cornerstone. You are chosen and precious. And yes, you were rejected. You were rejected by men who thought that by rejecting you, they could do away with you. How foolish. You were rejected by men, but that was marvelous in the Lord's eyes. It is now marvelous in our eyes. Because we see how the rejected stone became and is the cornerstone. And we praise you. And we ask for grace and faith to believe. To build our lives solidly on you. To let those that we care about and love know that it's a binary choice. It is to, to build your life on the cornerstone as he presents himself or to be broken to pieces and crushed by him. Or give us grace and courage that we might proclaim this cornerstone to a dying world. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.